Jesus, you are worthy of our adoration. We thank you, God, that you walk with us, that you are the God who loves creation in a self-giving, self-sacrificing way. We receive all that you have for us today, God. Worship team, thanks for leading us today, you guys. Thank you so much. And Dee, thank you for being, bringing some beauty to the stage with all these ugly clowns up here. So, yeah. It's worse when I get up here. So, yeah. There we go. Hey, I uh, want to give you, by the way, happy 4th of July. Glad you're here this, this morning with us. Thanks for being with us today. We know there's all kinds of places you could be. So thanks for choosing to be here, worshiping with the Hope family. Um, I want to give you a quick update before we jump into the message. Uh, a couple weeks ago, um, our missionary couple partners, um, the, the Delp family, we let you know that the whole family had gotten COVID. Um, oh, wait, Ecuador or Colombia? I always get... Ecuador. Ecuador thank you. Colombia is the Asazas. Um, and Joel actually was in the hospital twice. He had it the, the worst, um, and we prayed for him here together. And uh, this was a great email that uh, I got yesterday from, from Kim. There's the couple up on the screen. Kim sent this email. She said, thank you so much for your prayers. Heidi told me that you had a specific prayer time for him, which brought me to tears, knowing that just a couple hours after we prayed, he was discharged home. So... Thank you, Jesus. So good. She said, uh, we're grateful for the way that the Holy Spirit worked through and in all of the prayers of his people. Um, she had an image, she tells us here, that when she heard about us praying, she had this image, thought of Moses in Exodus 17, where, where Moses is getting weary and, and uh, Aaron and her um, hold up his arms uh, in, in his weariness so that the battle can continue to go forward. She said it was just a beautiful image of the church holding us up when we couldn't ourselves. So thank you from the Delps. She said we feel so loved and cared for and surrounded. So thanks for praying, you guys. It's always good when, when we hear a quick answer to prayer to make sure we remind ourselves that it matters. It matters that we pray. All right, well, let's... Uh, let's um, well, actually, yeah. We got that, that. I want us to pray this prayer together as we prepare uh, for the message. Let's all pray this out loud together. Uh, Holy Spirit, we plant our feet into the soil of the living God. We turn our ear toward the voice of the calling Christ. We lean our life into the wind of holy change. Be fierce, be gentle. Toss us, turn us. Shape us, dishevel us. O Holy Spirit, in gratitude we wait. In gratitude we pray. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Amen. Well, today uh, at the end of our message, we are going to be walking right up to receiving communion together. So if you didn't get your elements, there are probably some in the hall there. Looks like everybody's good, good to go. Um, 
And I was thinking when it came to communion uh, this week, I, I thought about a young man and something that he had, had said. This guy was talking about something he was wrestling with when it came to communion and the sacraments and the idea of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus when it came time to take communion. He said, um, I'm, I'm grateful, I'm grateful. He's struggling, but he says, I'm grateful for Jesus coming, for dying on the cross. I really am. When we take communion, I remember his sacrifice, the sacrifice that he made for me and for us. And then he said, but, <clears throat> but when I think about the death of Jesus, sometimes there's this little thing in the back of my head that's grateful for Jesus, but kind of nervous about God the Father. He goes on and said, I mean, some theologians, some churches teach that the reason Jesus had to die was that God the Father had to take out his anger and wrath on someone over the sin of the world, so he took it out on Jesus, that God the Father had to find an innocent victim to punish, and so Jesus took it on our behalf. He continued and said, again, I'm grateful, but honestly, I have to wonder, what kind of father is that? So we sing songs about, about God being this good, good father. We, we read in scripture about the kind of father that God is. We read stories like the prodigal son where Jesus described what God the father is like. And we hear how much God the father loves us. But still, if he had to pour out his wrath on and punish Jesus, it just confuses me. Anybody tracking with me on this so far? Does this resonate at all? Um, ever wondered about this kind of imagery? Sometimes we hear about the angry, punishing wrath of the Father God, and sometimes it creeps into like our songs or the hymns that are sung in church or different teachings, depending on what church we're uh, hanging out at. Um, well, today, in the time that we have, I'm not going to get be able to get like super deep into this, this theory of theology that that, that represents, that school of thought. Um, I'm going to try to summarize it very briefly. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to offer another viewpoint that's different than that one, that's actually more ancient and historical than that one in the Christian church, and I want that to lead us into our time of communion. So if this idea of God the Father being this angry God, if it bugs you, just please hang with me. Don't let it trigger you quite yet, because <laughs> there's good news. There's really good news. It's here. Um, uh, recently, Brian Zond, a, a pastor, a theologian in my book, I think he's a really good theologian, he wrote this excellent book. I bought it, first of all, just because of what he, the title of it. Um, it's Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. <laughs> the Scandalous Truth of the Very Good News. I love this book. It is really fantastic. And some of you, if you grew up in churches, especially in some of the more Baptist churches or like we did in a more Assemblies of God type, um, maybe you've heard of uh, back in the 18, or, I'm sorry, the 1700s, a guy named um, Jonathan Edwards preached a very famous sermon uh, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, so this is a little bit of a twist on that idea. Uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God is um, Zahn's book. And, and all through this book, he asks these great questions. And in one place in particular that really helped me um, was when he talked about this idea of this angry father God who punished Jesus, um, demanded that Jesus be killed on a cross, and the idea that often sometimes happens where people believe that that's how God's requirement for justice was paid off by punishing Jesus. 
Um, Zahn says this, he says, we must not interpret the cross according to an economic model where God had to gain the necessary capital to forgive sins through the vicious murder of his son. How would, he asks, how would this pay off God theory of the cross work anyway? And then he asks a bunch of questions, here's some of them. Did God have some scale of torture that once met would extinguish finally his wrath? Or if God required the death of Jesus in order to forgive, okay, if it was that, then did it have to be a violent death? Did it have to be death by crucifixion, one of the most violent ways to die? He asked, did it have to involve the torture of Roman scourging? And did God require a certain number, even a minimum number of lashes that Jesus had to endure for this to count? He asked, was the crown of thorns, was that necessary? Did God require a specific number of thorns to expiate his anger? He goes on to conclude and says, in his opinion, his belief, a theory of the cross that says it was God who desired the torture and murder of Jesus on Good Friday turns the father of Jesus into a cruel and sadistic monster. It's salvation by divine sadism. And that really struck me. Now, that's making some of you nervous, depending on where you've grown up theologically. But friends, let me just take it back to this. If this idea of an angry father who punished Jesus so that our sins could be forgiven enough for him to tolerate being around sinful humans, if that idea has troubled you, I have good news. That is not the heart of the Father God that we find in Scripture. The pages of Scripture does not describe that other kind of angry, vindictive father. Now, before we go down that trail, and just a couple of the reasons that we have time to look at, um, I want to just say a word about theology. I want to clarify something about theology. Theology essentially is the study uh, of what we believe about God. And theology is important. I dedicate lots of my time, energy, and, and, and mental space to theology. Um, Christian theology, essentially, it's made up of theories. I'll call them theories. Some people get mad if we call them theories. But I think they're theories that we come up with as people by reading scripture and then trying to put the ideas together to make sense of this larger questions that we have about the study of who God is. And what he's like. Um, so theology is very important, right? But how many of you know that theology is also very divisive? Anybody experience theology being divisive, dividing people, getting people really upset? There's nothing like a Christian um, who has strong opinions about something and their opinion towards someone who has very strong different opinions than they do. Is there? There's nothing quite like that, is there? <laughs> Um, see, sadly, actually, people can be quite hateful towards other Christians that see things differently um, and really quickly try to dismiss them by calling them heretics or fools or any number of things that we see. Um, and I just even bring this up about theology because some Christians, and maybe even some of us in this room, get really angry if another Christian, say, like me and what I'm about to do here this morning, if we were to question the theology that you were taught and grew up with. And by the way, I was taught and grew up with that whole angry God um, theology. 
And the tighter we hold to those things that we were taught, um, the angrier we get when someone challenges it or just asks us to look at Scripture and think about it. Um, let me give you an example outside of the whole wrath of God um, when it comes to Jesus being crucified. Let me pull away from that. Give you another example, that something that people get. So let's just get the rest of you mad at me here this morning, okay? Um, for example, right, some of us have heard in churches the teaching, um, something like, it goes like this, the Bible says that man, the man, the husband, is to be the spiritual leader in his house. Heard that teaching anywhere, somewhere before? Here's the problem. That's not actually in the Bible. Now, I know the verses that people extrapolate that from, they interpret it to mean that, but the Bible itself doesn't actually say that. And even when I use that little example as an example, you know, some people get kind of worked up, maybe even some people in this room, and here's what I want to say about stuff that we disagree about or see differently. It's okay. It's okay. It's got to be okay for us to disagree. We talk about being a family here at Hope all the time. And in a family, you aren't loved and accepted because you agree with everything. You are loved and accepted because you're a part of the family, whether or not we agree and see things the same way. And today, as we look at this kind of touchy subject here about why Jesus died and the idea that I'm going to put out there that suggests that no, God the Father didn't kill Jesus. Um, if you're somebody that already has your mind made up, that's cool. That's cool. We can disagree. We can even dialogue. Um, maybe mostly who I'm talking to this morning is those of us who have questions. Questions like, how do I reconcile um, th this Father God that we meet in, say, stories that Jesus told, like the prodigal son in Luke 15, where Jesus describes the Father one way. How do I reconcile that unconditional loving Father that moves towards us, runs towards us? How do I reconcile that with the theology that we've heard some places about the wrath of an angry God that had to be poured out on his son Jesus in order for us to be forgiven. And again, in the time we have, um, I can't answer every question, objection, or argument, and that's not my point. I just want to put something in front of us that might be, would be helpful for some of us. And again, listen, because there is... In the covenant, we talk a lot about there's freedom in Christ. There's freedom in Christ, so we don't have to see eye to eye on every point of theology, and we still get to remain in fellowship, in community. And here's the deal. Here's how we roll here at Hope. Wherever you land on this um, and whatever you've been taught on this one, uh, let's just agree that we're not going to let differences of opinion on this kind of theological stuff divide us. Amen? Let me try over here. Let's agree... We're not going to let theological differences divide us on this stuff. Amen? Okay, this side's good. We're good. We're with. Okay. I'm going to stay over here today. I'll be good. All right, so what I'm going to do is just a, a quick bit of history. I know history is so exciting for some of us, but I'm going to try to make it quick. I'm going to try to make it interesting and just explain a little bit of where this idea came from, this idea that Jesus had to die on the cross because of the wrath of God towards humankind. This idea actually doesn't happen until after the 1100s. Think about that. For the first more than half so far of church history from the life of Christ onward, the idea that there was some punishment happening on Jesus from the wrath of God 
didn't even occur to the church in the early days. It was a long time before somebody came up with this angry God killing Jesus theory. Um, this theory, theologians call it, here's the, the, the name for it, here's a real fun one. On the screen we've got um, penal, careful how I say this, penal substitutionary atonement. Um, the word penal, meaning punishment, a payment that has to happen under a legal system. If you blow it, here's the payment. Uh, substitutionary is substituting, right? It's pretty easy. In your place, somebody comes and does something in your place. Atonement, that word comes from at one being at one with God, um, reconciled to God. Um, and the biggest problem with these three words in this theory because uh, it is the word penal. It's the punishment, the payment under a legal system where there's a wrath of God that has to be poured out because the other words make a lot of sense, but that first one, the penal part of the substitutionary atonement gets trickier to find in Scripture. Um, so before this theory came up, again, like I said, the first 1,100 years of Christianity People, Christians, followers of Jesus, the church, saw things very differently when it came to communion and the atonement and, and Christ dying in our place. Um, they didn't have that kind of punishment of the wrath of God thing in play at all. I mean, yes, they believed that Jesus died, that Jesus, yeah, he was sacrificed. Yes, Jesus bore our sin and shame on the cross that he did it in our place. Yes, 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 the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. And because of the cross of Christ, we are freed from the power of sin. Yes, they agreed all those things, right? But in those days and a lot of people, by the way, now as well, um, the death and resurrection about Jesus, it wasn't about satisfying the wrath of an angry, holy God who couldn't stand sin, so he had to kill Jesus in our place. Instead, here's how they saw the death and resurrection of Jesus. They saw that act of Jesus as a victory. God won victory over Satan. God won victory over the powers of this world. That's what happened when Jesus died and was resurrected. It was a victory over Satan and the powers of this dark world. See, Satan and the powers of this world, which go beyond demonic forces, by the way, to include systems and structures that facilitate that kind of evil, which are often run by people, so sometimes in politics, sometimes in religion, those kinds of structures um, conspired. If you just read the Gospels, those are the structures and systems that conspired to have Jesus killed. But here's the deal. Jesus was not some unwilling victim. He wasn't, oh, I don't see it coming. No, he went right along with it. He went into it, agreed to it, could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world, to set him free, and instead, he allows himself to be led to the cross. He allows himself to be killed. He went along with it. And the shocking part for the forces of evil? Can you imagine what the devil and his foul spirits, they had to be full of glee. We have him. We have him. Has anybody seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or read the C.S. Lewis book? We just listened to the audiobook while we were driving. It's been a while. Oh my gosh, it was so powerful. The white witch in the story, um, Aslan, agrees to come and, and give his life so that one of the other characters, the humans, could be spared. And he walks up, and at first, all the foul beings are scared to death because they know he could, one little flick of his tail, and he could do them in. 
But he comes calmly, willingly, could have swatted them all away, could have attacked them all and done them in just like Jesus. A beautiful parable, picture of what Jesus did. He willingly went along with it. And they were so full of glee and delight. The evil spirits, the foul spirits, Satan was so greedy that they didn't realize that they were playing right into Jesus' plan. See, Jesus, because he had never sinned, he never had sinned. Death had no power over him. Well, they hadn't thought of that one (laughs) because there'd never been a sinless person before. And so when it came to Jesus then dying, he couldn't be kept in the grave because he had never sinned. Death had no power over him, and he vanquished the forces of the evil one. That is the primary motif that that the early church focused on when they focused on the work of Christ, his, his cross, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and he shocked the world. Jesus shocked the forces of evil by by beating death and proving that he is Lord over all. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, what the early church realized and what we need to remember is, is that Jesus took back authority from the enemy over this planet, I mean, that's a big part of what they celebrated at communion too, that, 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 that Jesus had victory over Satan and overthrew the powers of evil and that this world was no longer under the lordship of Satan. So that was, you know, first 1,100 years, then in 1,100 years, uh, Anselm, uh, mentioned, I mentioned this, he, he developed this new theory that uh, now we call penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, in the 1500s, a guy named uh, John Calvin really developed it even further. And still today, many, many churches kind of stick with this idea of the atonement, which centers on a wrathful God whose justice cannot be satisfied unless somebody gets punished, which turns out is Jesus. But not everybody believes that way. And a lot of people that are good students of Scripture don't believe that way. A lot of people that are good students of Scripture do believe that way. That's okay. It's okay. Um, and I'll, this will become clear to you why I'm going to use this example here. There have always been good students of Scripture who look to understand why do we believe what we believe? Why does the church teach this? Why does the church teach that? Where did that come from? One great example from the 1800s is a pastor named Peter Paul Waldenstrom. He either needed to be in a musical group with that name or... A preacher, so he chose to be a preacher. He was a pastor in the state church uh, of Sweden, which was Lutheranism, um, and it was state-run, whole different stuff we could get into uh, about the interesting um, way that it was very convenient for the state church to promote this view of the atonement about punishment and law and order and all these other things. Anyway, uh, we'll get into that another day. Um, Different sermon, but... The state church theology, which was taught, and he was trained under. Waldenstrom was also an expert, by the way, at this and trained other people. But here's the summary of what their teaching was as the state church. It held that God was a strict, austere being who brought judgment on every sin, misdeed, transgression of his divine law. His wrath against humans and their iniquities had to be satisfied and appeased. God was angry. And you can maybe see how this conveniently played into the governmental partnership here. Um, 
But even though God was angry, Jesus, they taught, by his suffering and death, paid the price, which we would agree with, by the way. But here's the departure. Jesus, by paying the price, changed his father's disposition towards humans. In sacrificing himself to a ruthless father on the cross, Jesus atoned for sin, making it possible for a wrathful God to accept sinners. Again, some of this, very true. I think scripturally backed. That wrathful, angry, vindictive part of why Jesus died to appease the father, not so much. Now listen, there was a pastor in the era, here's a great uh, uh, theory Oh, that theory that, that they believed, he put it to verse here, kind of a song or a poem or something. Uh, his name is John J. Daniels. Uh, but it'd been better if it was Jack Daniels, but here, we'll put it on the screen. Um, Good works I ought to do are done on my behalf by Christ God's Son. And all my guilt on him was laid, and on his cross my debt was paid. In wrath Jehovah swung his rod and lashed his son, the Lamb of God. And when the son in anguish died, Jehovah smiled, satisfied. Whew. I asked um, maybe Jim or Troy, you guys could make a little tune for us on that one. Just kind of sing that next Sunday. That'd be, be the new worship song, huh? Right? And when the son in anguish died, Jehovah smiled, satisfied. You didn't sing along. What the heck? Come on. Yeah. Well... That's, that represents kind of what their feelings and thoughts were and how they saw it, right? Now, in 1870, a group of pastors, theologians, they were meeting and talking about this angry God atonement theory. And Waldenstrom, the pastor I mentioned earlier, he asked this great question, where is it written? That question, by the way, is a fabulous question. Christians, as Christians, we are a people who trust Scripture to help us form our beliefs um, and the things that we say we believe need to be supported by Scripture or else maybe don't call it Christian. Just call it an idea or a thought. Don't put the Christian label on it. Where is it written? Um, like, where in the Bible did that idea come from? Or as Pastor Dwayne Cross used to say all the time, many times, here when he would preach, huh? Anybody read that? What do you say? Read your Bible. Fantastic stuff. Like, don't, I mean, we hope you trust us, but when we teach stuff, go home and check it out, right? Check it out. Read your Bible, right? Where is it written? And, and Waldenstrom asked that, where is it written question to all these theologians that they were having the conversation with. And, and at first they laughed, where is it written? I mean, they assumed this is wrathful, angry God thing was in there somewhere. And then they realized there was no real chapter or verse directly related in that they had taken it from other teachings handed down. So what Waldenstrom did for two years, two years, he devoted all of his study attention to study this idea of an angry God that needed to be placated, and he was looking in Scripture to find where is that written, where is it written? And what Waldenstrom found in the Bible, was an entirely different understanding of God. Nowhere was the idea of this distant, angry father God that had to be placated by Jesus being punished. It was not found either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. In fact, Waldenstrom's study, and wrote extensively about this, he found this, that our heavenly father, 
was actually never irritated or negative toward us. He was not cruel. He did not want to punish us and did not have to be reconciled to us. God didn't have to be won over reconciled to us. Rather, he found that even in the strength that God carries in his own holiness, his own power, even with all of that being true, God was always and forever showing mercy and kindness toward us. For God so loved the world. Love is his posture. That's why he gave, he gave his son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world. See, God's love is eternal. God's very nature, scripture tells us, God is love. It's his very nature. And though we might turn our backs and reject him, he never turns his back to us. Never, ever, ever. See, it, it was not, when we sinned, it was not God who then walked away from us and couldn't stand to be around us because apparently that's what holiness means. That's not what happened. He didn't walk away. We walked away. We, human beings, turned away. See, God doesn't have to be reconciled to us, friends. He has never changed his posture of love toward us, ever. He has never changed his posture of love toward you, ever, ever. See, friends, it is we who have to be reconciled to God, not him to us. We have to be one over, and that is why he sent his son to win us back. And when Jesus went to the cross, he fought evil in our place, but he didn't do it to appease an angry God. He atoned for our sins. He was the sacrifice for our sins, but he didn't do it because the wrath of God had to be punished, punishing someone. Turned out to be him. And by the way, Waldenstrom's teaching, it gained traction because it was very good and very biblical and it made sense. But as you can imagine, wow, theology causing controversy? Yeah, it did. It caused some controversy in that Swedish Lutheran state church. Um, and eventually, depending on who you ask what happened next, um, he was asked to leave. And a lot of the folks that agreed with this teaching um, and the, this commitment to ask of Scripture, where is it written, um, they formed this new group. Does anybody know what group came out of the where is it written crowd that left the Swedish Lutheran church? Yeah, the Evangelical Covenant Church is what we're now called today. Not our particular church. We're a part of that bigger tribe. Um, that wasn't like our pastor before Dwayne or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's us, and that's why we, we want to know where it is. Where is it in Scripture? Where is it written? So important to us. Where is that written? And so, friends, if, if the idea of an angry father who punished Jesus for our sins so that he could tolerate being around sinful human beings, if that idea has troubled you, I have good news. That is not the Father God that we find all through the pages of Scripture. So, why did Jesus die? And I'm going to do about five minutes of that and then lead us to communion, take about five minutes to do that. And I'm going to pick up some more thoughts the next time we do communion because there's some other really cool stuff that is so important, so important to, to recognize and, and see in Scripture. But, but let me, why, why did Jesus die? Um, 
going to summarize the story uh, of what happened, right? So go back to where God made the earth. God creates this earth. Then he gives it to Adam and Eve to steward. Um, and he gives them the authority, by the way, to govern this world. Be fruitful, multiply, rule the earth, right? Psalm 155 says it this way. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man, men and women. So Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, as the story goes, the lord and lady of this earthly kingdom, as you know, it didn't take long before they took the authority that they were given and then forfeited their authority through disobedience, through sinning. And that, by the way, is how Satan became what Jesus called um, Satan became the prince of this world. That's what Jesus called him in John. And it would have been common knowledge. That's how they would have referred to say, yeah, he's the prince of this world. They would have known that back in those days. And he had the authority because Adam and Eve handed it over to them. He is the prince of this world. And prince of this world means ruler of this world. And if you doubt that Satan has been and still has some areas where he is ruler of this world, just look at the ruin and devastation. Just open the news. Just look and see what is there. See, when an evil ruler comes into power, it allows evil into the kingdom that he rules over. Devastation comes. Just like Hitler, just like Stalin, just like Idi Amin, evil rulers come, evil comes into the kingdom because Satan had authority over this world. Now, in that Genesis story, after Adam and Eve have sinned, there, God shows up, has that famous conversation with Adam and Eve. We hear about the curse and the consequences. But even as God is describing consequences, here's what's going to happen, Adam and Eve. You chose this, and here's the outcome of that. God turns then, in that moment, in Genesis 3, speaks to the serpent, to the enemy, to the devil, and gives us the first hint that there's a rescue underway, that one day a deliverer, a Messiah will come. Genesis 3.15 says, and I, God speaking, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will, catch this, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And many theologians believe that that's the first hint of God saying there will be a Messiah, the coming of Christ, who will crush the head of the serpent. So the story continues all through the Old Testament. We'll fast forward to the New Testament. Satan has been given authority over this world, over this earth, and Jesus comes to win it back. Jesus comes to take authority back. And interesting, by the way, if you go, well, Satan's never had authority over this world. Um, actually, this makes a lot of sense. Um, one place that we see it is in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus seems to indicate that, yes, Satan does have authority over this world. Um, in Luke 4, you've heard the story of the temptation of Christ in the desert. We've told that a few times here. But when the evil one slithers up to Jesus in the wilderness and tries to tempt him, in one of the temptations, he's trying to tempt him to take authority so he could opt out of the cross. And he does that tempting by offering Jesus all the kingdoms of this world as if they are his to give to Jesus. Check out the verse here, Luke 4, verse 5 through 7. The devil led Jesus up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world 
And he said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Now, if you know this story, what's interesting is that all through the story, when Satan tells a lie, Jesus counters it with truth. Jesus doesn't even go after this one like he does all the other lies that the enemy tells. He does not dispute. Jesus does not dispute that the devil has authority to offer, that the devil has authority to offer that level of global power to Jesus. He did. See, it was, it was the enemies to offer because we, human beings, had turned it over to the devil at the fall of man. We gave Satan authority. We abandon it to him. But Jesus comes to win back, win it all back, to redeem it through the cross. He willingly went to the cross. He died a cruel death. Because of our sin, friends, we could not save ourselves. We, we were slaves to sin, Scripture says. We gave the devil authority over our lives. And he had a hold on us, a claim on us. But Jesus, but Jesus. First Peter 1 tells us Jesus paid a ransom. Us slaves needed to be ransomed. Jesus paid the ransom to free us from our slavery. Verse 18, First Peter, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him for this purpose long before the world began. But now in these final days, he was sent to the earth for all to see. And he did this for you. See, God paid a ransom to save you. He paid for you with the precious blood of Jesus. He did it for you. He did it out of love to ransom you from the power of sin and the penalty of death. He ransomed you and me from the claim of Satan and the evil powers and wicked authorities that scripture talks about that had authority over this world. Jesus comes and in his Death and resurrection, he wins back the victory. He, he, he takes authority. And friends, we needed to be ransomed because we were slaves to sin, slaves to sin. Jesus says it this way in John 8, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, right? We'll stop there for a second. Yeah, we, we get enslaved to anything, we're submitting our wills to that person or to that thing. We become slaves to it. And it usually starts out as something that we kind of enjoy, but then it escalates and it can become slavery, right? Um, like, I don't think smoking is automatically a sin, okay? I can get in trouble. There's another place we can agree to disagree. Um, I can get in trouble with somebody there. But, but here's the problem, um, is that smokers, you can become enslaved to nicotine, right? Eventually, you might try to resist it, but the demands of nicotine will always win. Any smokers or former smokers that can say, yeah, that's true, that's true. Yeah, there's some of us that know that, right? So what happens is this thing ends up controlling me instead of me controlling it. That's slavery. It's no fun. 
You're not going to hell if you smoke. Um, you might smell like it. It's, you know, I don't know. Um, how about addiction? Alcoholics. They become enslaved to whatever substance it is that was fun at first. But then it starts to have power over them, and it's very hard to secure your freedom. It can be done, but addicts know how this works, right? How about workaholics? Workaholics are enslaved to perfectionism um, and to achievement. That's what workaholics are after they're trying to achieve. Perfectionists might become, usually become, enslaved to precise standards and control and make everybody else miserable around them. Food addicts become enslaved to food. I know that from personal experience. Gamblers become enslaved to risking all for the chance of winning and the thrill. That's slavery, right? Look at the rest of the passage. Uh, I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Then Jesus says, now a slave. I love how this is tied together. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son, a daughter, belongs to it. How long? Forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now that's the kind of freedom that we need, friends. See, we try to navigate life apart from God and trying all these other roads and places, and we can get enslaved to all kinds of stuff. Um, even if we're having fun and enjoying it as we do it, Sin catches up with us. I know this from experience. It hardens our heart. It deadens our spirit. We can become a slave to whatever it is that we are looking to and trying to get life from. And Jesus says, hey, 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 follow me. Turn from your old ways. Follow me. I want to free you. He doesn't say, I'm angry, and so you better get in line here. I'm just going to be ticked because I'm holy. No. He says, follow me. Follow me. He wants to lead us to a pathway of life. He says, I paid the price so you have a choice. You don't have to live in bondage to sin. The ransom is paid. You don't have to be enslaved. The ransom's paid. You can become a son or a daughter of God. You can be free. You can just receive the ransom I already paid. And I believe many of us can look back on our story. I know I can. We look back on our life story and we remember... <laughs> in one way or another, what it felt like to be a slave apart from Christ. Yep, the enemy had authority over me there. That thing had a control over me. Felt like a prisoner. But, but Jesus, Jesus ransomed us. We turn to Jesus. We follow him, not just going to church or saying a magic prayer. We, we start following Jesus, and Jesus set us free. And now, if you've gone down that path, you know, even though we forget... <laughs> You and I are sons and daughters. We are no longer slaves, but now we belong. We belong in the family of God. Jesus has set us free, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So that's why Jesus died, and we'll get to more of it next time we do communion. But listen, when, when Jesus went to the cross, remember, the devil thought he'd won. Oh, I've got him. He thought he had killed God, but Jesus had never sinned. Death had no authority over him. He broke out of the grave. He rose from the dead in victory. He defeated the devil, and he took back authority over all things 
And his authority is unfolding as his kingdom unfolds. And we are invited to be in his kingdom. That's what we celebrate. One of the things we can celebrate as we receive communion is the victory that Jesus won over the forces of evil where you and I, no longer slaves, we can be set free. Worship team, will you come? I love that first Peter verse. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you. The ransom wasn't paid with gold or silver. He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And he did this for you. For God so loved the world. For God so loved you that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life be set free indeed. Friends, you are ransomed. If you are following Jesus, remember, even if we forget and stumble, you are ransomed. You have been redeemed. You are free. You are loved. And I believe that that's what Jesus fixed his eyes on when he went to the cross. That love. That's what he fixed his eyes on. I believe he had that fully in front of him. As he went to the cross and as he gathered on the night he was betrayed with his disciples, that love was fully in view for Jesus. The journey he was about to take to take back authority and to set us free. When he took the bread and he broke it. When he had given thanks, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat do this to remember me. Friends, let's eat the bread together. And still fully focused on the battle that was in front of him that he was going to walk calmly and willingly into Jesus took the cup and when he had blessed it and given thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant which is in my blood which will be poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. Friends, let's drink the cup together. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your great love, a love that seems unbelievable, so unbelievable that sometimes I think we concoct stuff that sounds way out there just to make it not as good as it really is, but it is really good. Your love is really good. As the song says, your love seems maybe even reckless to some. You counted the cost. You saw us and of your love for us, you willingly gave your life as an atoning sacrifice. You did take our place. And it was both out of your love and the Father's love for us that you went to the cross. We thank you for your love, Jesus. And now we sing to you these
spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. For I took a breath, you breathed your life in me.
Let's sing one more time the overwhelming. together, stolen from one of my favorite uh, apps. Let's pray together. Father, help me to live this day to the full, being true to you in every way. Jesus, help me to give myself away to others, being kind to everyone I meet. There's one more. Spirit, Help me to love the lost, proclaiming Christ in all I do and say, amen, amen. People of hope, as you go into your world, may you proclaim the love of Jesus that you are experiencing, and may he fill you with his love, the love of the Father for you. He cares deeply for you, wants you to be free of all the stuff that tries to drag you down and keep you away from the freedom that his ransom has provided. Will you step into that? And may you step into that this week. And may you love everyone that you come in contact with in ways that you don't even know where that came from until you remember that you are being filled with the love of the Spirit and it's flowing through you to them. Be blessed. In the name of the Father and the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And as you go, the benevolence plate is back there. If you want to give toward people at Hope that have financial needs, you can give that way uh, in the gold plate with the red bottom as you go. Um, and I, I hope to see you guys very, very soon. Love you. Have a good, good 4th of July. Take care.
up, guys.